Hey, welcome to the Spiritual History. Uh, if you want to, to take notes, you can. But at the end, I'll give you an address where you can get the whole thing. And I'm happy to, to you know, email it to you. And uh, you can use it, copy it, take credit for it, copyright it, change it, uh, take credit for it. It's, it's a fun uh, presentation, not only for personal use, but also for sharing with people uh, in, the, in the healthcare world. So let me start us with a, a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together. I pray that this information would be used by your spirit to motivate each of us to bear fruit. May you, Father, through this information, bear fruit in us and through us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, just some real quick uh, uh, advertising. Uh, some of you that have known me for a while know that I have an uh, evidence-based, faith-based blog at drwalt.com. About three blogs every other day, maybe ten or so a week. You can go and, and take a look at them anytime you want. But also, if you sign up for the, for the blog, I'll email you every Saturday morning the ten or fifteen uh, topics that I address that week. And you can decide which ones you're interested in, which ones you want to dump. But drwalt.com slash blog. And uh, none of the books I've had the privilege of writing for the Christian Medical Association are here, but all are available through the website. And so the Alternative Medicine book, which was the first book that I did for the Christian Medical Association's evidence-based book, looks like a meta-analysis. It's like the 100 most popular herbs, vitamins, and supplements used in uh, North America and the 50 most popular alternative therapies, everything from acupuncture to yoga on the alternative uh, therapies part and everything from aloe to, to zinc on the, the herb part. I just re-released last year, so it's fairly up to date. And then 10 Essentials of Happy, Healthy People is just out in its third revision. Uh, happy meaning blessed, not ha-ha happy. Uh, and then some other health books that I've done for CMDA. Supersized Kids actually was for Florida Hospital. Uh, down in Orlando, and for any of you that deal with kids who are wrestling with being overweight or obese, it's a family-based book uh, on dealing with childhood overweight and obesity. God's designed for the highly healthy teen, both for parents who, who have teens and teens themselves, on being highly healthy physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And the book I did when I was at Focus on the Family, ADHD Doesn't Mean Disaster, co-written with two authors, uh, Dennis Swanberg and Diane Pasno, who have ADHD and have raised a child with ADHD and a child without ADHD. It's a fun book for, for parents to encourage them about these special children uh, that are incredibly gifted kids. They just kind of have to be unwrapped differently than other kids. In the marriage camp, uh, Sue Crockett, a OBGYN down in San Antonio, and I wrote a book for marriage preparation called The Honeymoon of Your Dreams. Um, particularly written for men. We know that the average woman spends 1,400 hours planning for her marriage and about three and a half hours planning for, I've said 1,400 hours planning for her wedding and about three and a half hours planning for her marriage. So this is to encourage them to begin marriage planning and to build a marriage that will last a lifetime and to begin that at the honeymoon. And then the first and only book that Barb and I wrote together 
his brain, her brain, how divinely designed differences can strengthen your marriage. When Barb sent in her title suggestion for that book to the publisher, it was his brain, her brain, does he really have one? (laughs) That's not funny. (laughs) Fortunately, they didn't take that. And... um, so great gift ideas for, for the holidays if you're interested. Uh, two years ago, I ventured into fiction for the first time writing with a dear friend, Paul McCusker. Paul writes for Adventures in Odyssey and Radio Theater. And we uh, invented a team called TSI, Time Scene Investigators, who have to go back in history, not time travel, have to go solve a mystery from the past medically to save the world from imminent and certain doom. So the Gabon virus is the first airborne Ebola virus weaponized by terrorists. And then uh, the influenza bomb, kind of timely, huh, is a terrorist group who recreates the uh, 1919 Spanish flu, the most uh, horrible pandemic we've ever had. One in ten adults died, uh, upwards of 100 million people in that pandemic. So so those are there. And then uh, tonight I'll be talking to you, uh, sharing with you some stories from my first mission experience in Bryson City, a little town in western North Carolina, Bryson City Tales, Seasons, and Secrets. Uh, can be uh, ordered individually or as a group, can make fun Christmas reading. Just got a great review on these books. A reviewer uh, for one of the New York periodicals said, Laramore, the James Harriet of adult medicine. And I, those of you that ever read all things, all things great and small, things bright and beautiful, I loved him. I can't remember his book titles, but I loved him. So. Anyway, but here's what we're going to talk about today. Three things I want to share with you. And by the way, as we're discussing this, if you've got a problem, a, a conflict, a question, a criticism, a critique, a question, just shout out. I'm happy to, to stop. So why is a spiritual history now considered an element of quality clinical care? We're going to look at some available instruments, some questions that you can consider as you deal with uh, patients, and then a few how-tos and cautions and try to finish on time. Uh, Scott, did Al write this week's devotion? He writes most of it. Uh, Al Weir uh, was uh, on staff with uh, CMDA for a number of years. He does the weekly devotion. It was just by, I thought it was interesting that his devotion this week, uh, just a couple days ago, was opening doors based on Revelation 3.20. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. Al writes this. <clears throat> this was our first visit. This was his first visit, and he seemed a bit skittish. After making him more comfortable, I began to obtain the information I needed to manage his problem. Present symptoms, past medical history, allergies, social history. Are you married? Yes. What kind of work do you do? I'm a teacher. Do you use cigarettes? Quit three years ago. Do you have a religious faith that you follow? Not really. My wife does. She's a Buddhist. I was raised Jewish. I do believe there's a God. I recommend that you call on him to help you while you're going through this problem. Also says, how do we as Christian doctors get from how's your back molar doing or tell me about your belly pain to do you know Jesus? Almost always the correct answer is one step at a time. Patients come to us for a medical or dental problem and expect us to focus on that important issue. For most patients, there's a wide intellectual and emotional gap between their concern for their physical problem and their concern over their spiritual health. Most doctors struggle in the same way. 
I'm here to fix the need they bring to me. It's like there's a door between the spiritual lives of doctors and the spiritual lives of their patients with a knob on either side. The patient won't turn his knob because he thinks the doctor's not interested. And the doctor won't turn hers because she's sure that the patient is not interested. Attempting to turn the knob sets off an alarm for either one of them, screaming, rejection, rejection, rejection. This may not be an ideal model for our Christian witness, but for many of us, it's the reality of where we practice. But many doctors have discovered that the most natural way to open the door to a discussion of their patient's spiritual health is through the spiritual history. Not only is a spiritual history necessary in order for us to understand our patient holistically, taking his history actually turns the the doorknob and allows our patients to open up spiritually to whatever God is doing in their lives. And then we can, guided by God's spirit, follow with simple faith flags or even the gospel story, allowing God in his wisdom to use our encounter to draw his lost child closer to him. And then Al ends with this prayer. Dear Father, teach me to be ready with your word. Speak through me with every patient I encounter so that you may draw them closer to you. Amen. So we're here to talk about spiritual history. But you need to know that in North America, there is a distinct academic bent against doing that. Most recently, uh, in last year, February of 2009, represented in Time Magazine, which did a whole issue on how faith can heal. Included in that was a health and science forum entitled Faith and Healing, a forum. They took three experts, a Columbia psychologist, a, a chaplain, and then a fellow who is a physician and, and had this little forum. And I just want to point out to you one part of the interview where Dr. Richard Sloan, a psychologist at Columbia, was asked by the, uh, by the uh, interviewer, so doctors should not be taking spiritual histories. And Sloan, the most quoted expert in this area by those who think that you should not be doing spiritual history, says, I don't think they should be taking spiritual histories. Now, this isn't just off-the-cuff comment of his, because throughout the medical literature, we have some very strong editorials saying that it's inappropriate for you to take a spiritual history. Whether we look at the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet or Archives of Internal Medicine or American Family Physician or Annals of Behavioral Medicine, all top-tier journals with editorials saying you should not take a spiritual history. There's just one issue of commonality with all of these articles. Can you see it? It's the lead author, right? It's the same Sloan. By the way, virtually no one else publishes this opinion, but he gets great press. The closest we've ever had to an academic refutation of that was a systematic, systematic review of what the authors called positive spirituality and annals of behavioral medicine. I was the lead on that particular article. But we concluded that the evidence that's in the medical literature, the evidence today demonstrates trained or experienced clinicians should encourage positive spirituality. And starting with spiritual history, 
Why does Sloan say you shouldn't do it, but why do I say it's part of quality clinical care? I'm going to give you five reasons. We're going to rush through these very, very quickly, and we can revisit them in Q&A. Patient's desire is one issue. Patient's benefit when we take a spiritual history. Spiritual history identifies a significant risk factor. Even taking a history may enhance health care, and it's become a standard of care, in fact, been a standard of care for almost 20 years. So I'll give you the date on that. By the way, for those of you who have come in since we started, don't feel like you have to take notes on everything because at the end I'll give you an address where you can get, get the handout. We feel free to take notes, but I'm just the handout's going to be available. So number one, patient desire. The most recent data that we have, national data, comes from 2004. Uh, Val Gilchrist at UNC, Gil McCord, published a study in Annals of Family Medicine. And they uh, looked at what patients think about spiritual history. They concluded that patients are more interested in spirituality than ever. And to back that up, in this national pool data, they found that 83% of the respondents then, in 2004, said they wanted their doctors to ask about their spiritual beliefs, at least in some circumstances. When they were asked, well, of that 83%, when are you... When would you most prefer the doctor to ask? The vast majority of them, 76%, said, well, it depends on the situation. You know, if it's a splinter or a a little mouth ulcer or something, maybe not. But certainly for more significant visits, 76% said, depends on the situation. 24% said, we always want our doctor to ask. In fact, a significant percent of these will tell you whether you ask or not of, of their particular uh, spiritual bent. Another cross-sectional survey that was done at Rush Presbyterian St. Louis in Chicago found that 70%, 6% of the med surge patients that were admitted and 88% of the psych patients indicated three or more religious needs. I mean, a huge percent of patients desire this. Just some of the needs that they found at Rush, patients saying they'd like to speak with a chaplain or other clergy, like the opportunity to attend a hospital worship service, would like to know about that, would like spiritual reading materials, would like someone to pray with, would like spiritual reading materials. What happens when people face the first time their mortality? They begin to think about spiritual things. What happens when, when women deliver a baby? They begin to think about spiritual things. I was rounding with the residents. I teach at uh, a Christian residency in his image over in Tulsa. And we were rounding, uh, doing uh, morning rounds, and we had a, uh, this brilliant physician from the Soviet Union who was uh, in charge of ICU. So we were doing ICU rounds. He said, this is a patient, a young man, who's th- I think 32-year-old fellow who was getting better from a sepsis. Uh, we do spiritual histories on our patients there. He said he's an atheist, uh, but he's getting better, and we hope to have him discharged out of the ICU in a, in a day or two and then and heading home. And I said, Sasha, I want to go see this guy. He goes, oh, Dr. Lermer, he's fine. We don't really need to drop by. I said, no, 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 I want to see him because this would be a case report. And this young Russian physician said, well, Marissa sepsis, like maybe where you come from that's rare, but we see it all the time. <laughs> this is not a case report. I said, no, no, no. You've got an atheist in the ICU. I've never seen one. Now, I've only practiced 30 years, but I've never, I said I'd like to meet him because literally this is a reportable case. So we walked in and introduced myself to the man and talked for a few minutes. And I said, just a, just a question. I said, while you're here, have you had any thoughts about God? He said, thoughts about God? I talk to him every day. 
I prayed like crazy while I was here. No, wow, I was disappointed. <laughs> Lost my case report. But patients, when they meet their doctors, have spiritual needs. Uh, Jim Hamilton uh, wrote this wonderful article about neo-pagans. These are people he defined as Wiccans or practice witchcraft, Druidia, Stratu. He said these are folks who might be concerned about public disclosure of their beliefs, right? These are people that are on the edge religiously, might not want to, as he said, come out of the broom closet. (laughs) Not my words. That's out of the article. And they might reasonably be expected to be reticent to discuss religious or spiritual matters in a healthcare setting, right? You sure think so. 73% of those folks said, I have spiritual beliefs that would influence medical decision making, even if the doctor might not agree with the beliefs. 84% agreed with this. It would be important for my doctor to ask about my religious beliefs. And 81% reported it would strengthen my trust in my doctor if he or she asked about my beliefs. I just think that's stunning data. Jim Hatch writes, Despite the increased attention being focused on spirituality and health, research reveals that doctors are often reluctant to explore spiritual issues with their patients. Now, uh, article after article in the medical literature has observed this phenomenon anecdotally. We just didn't have any data on why people were so reticent until more recently. But to show you how reticent we are and how much worse we're getting, this is four sets of national data starting in, 19, this is all in the U.S., starting in 1994. At that point, 80% of the population said, I have never, or 80% of the respondents said, I have never had a doctor ask me about my spiritual beliefs. If you go up to 1999, it was now 85% said, never had anybody ask. Uh, if you go up to 2002, it was 90%, and in the McCord and Gilchrist study of 2004, it's now 91%. At least in uh, the United States, healthcare professionals are apparently, at least the perception of our patients getting worse at taking spiritual histories. Why is that? Mark Ellis did a study in the state of uh, Missouri where they found that 94% of family physicians in Missouri believe that spiritual well-being is an important factor in health. So a huge percent. But despite this belief, very few of them reported ever making a spiritual consultation or referring to a chaplain. Um, they just, there's a difference between their actions and, and their beliefs, if you would. So they did a study to find out why. Why is it that, that people don't want to take a spiritual history? One reason was, I'm already pretty busy. I got a ton of stuff to do. Don't, t- don't give me one other thing to do. When uh, Scott and I would practice together in, in Kissimmee, we did a, a, a little uh, study where we were, we were, I was just getting kind of ticked off at everybody that was telling me what I needed to do during a pediatric well baby visit. You know, there was just this huge list of stuff that people said I needed to do. So we just, as a group, wrote down how much time it would take us to do each item. And do you know how much time it would take to do everything that everybody said we should do in a, in a well baby visit? What do you think? An hour. Oh, if you're, you're faster than I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was 87 minutes. Wow. So, yeah. So don't come along and give me something else to do unless you've got a really strong reason. And then the doctors said they were uncertain. Uh, 59 said 
56% said, kind of uncertain about taking spiritual history. 56% said, I'm not sure how I would identify people who want a spiritual discussion. About half said, that's not a can of worms I want to open. I wouldn't know how to manage it if, it if it opened. By the way, when they did their pilot study, they didn't use uncertainty. They used fear. Yeah. Are you scared to? And it was like 2%, 3% said, oh, yeah, I'm scared to. Mm-hmm. Then they said, well, are you uncertain? And they said, oh, yeah, well, I'm uncertain, but I'm not scared. <laughs> and then 59% said lack of experience or our training. I hope by the time we're done, you'll see that of all the spiritual interventions in clinical care that are possible for you to put into your spiritual black bag, the spiritual history is one of the easiest to, to begin with and one of the easiest to apply. So in general, the public appears to view and value religion as a central factor in their lives, especially when they're facing illness and in general, the public desires healthcare professionals to inquire about beliefs that are important to them. Most healthcare professionals are not trained or experienced in assessing this factor, and most of us do not inquire about our patient's faith, including Christian physicians. So, patient desire is one. Patient benefit, I just want to give you a couple of data points on this. It goes back uh, well into the 80s, but by a large systematic review in 1992 concluded religion and spirituality are among the most important factors that structure human experience, beliefs, values, behavior, and illness patterns. We can now add to that compliance to medical recommendations that a patient's religion and spirituality impact compliance to medical recommendations. Bergen in psychotherapy says for the more than 70%, now this is back in 1990, I think it would be a higher percent now, but back then he says for the more than 70% of the population for whom religious commitment is a central life factor, treatment approaches devoid of spiritual sensitivity may provide an alien values framework. He goes on to say, a majority of the population prefers an orientation that is sympathetic or at least sensitive to a spiritual perspective. We need to better perceive and respond to the public need. When Donal and I were working on the alternative medicine book, one of the surprises that we found as we were doing just the review of the literature to put the book together was the drivers for people seeking alternative therapists. And one of the key drivers is that in the alternative therapy world, our patients find providers who are willing to listen to, recognize, and honor their spiritual belief system. They find in the allopathic and osteopathic world uh, physicians, doctors, dentists, who do not. And it becomes very attractive uh, to them. The spiritual history identifies a significant risk factor. I mean, the whole purpose for doing histories is to find risk factors. We may not deal with them that particular day. You know, uh, if we've got a a patient with an open compound fracture, you know, of the tib-fib, their smoking history may not be something we'll deal with that day. But we take the history to look at potential interactions, historical interactions that will affect a patient's health and then prioritize whether we identify them or not. In general, and we've done this back into the 80s, studies suggest that infrequent religious attendance, as weak a measure as that is, just that weak measure by itself, is shown to be associated with morbidity and mortality in virtually every specialty that it's been looked at. But although um, 
absence of spiritual anemia, although it is associated with reduced health physically, emotionally, and relationally. An even more important factor when it comes to taking a spiritual history may be the negatives uh, that we can find in spiritual. In, in other words, are there religious beliefs that we, when we care for patients, are there some religious beliefs they have that will predict poor outcomes? And if so, should we be aware of, of that? Beliefs indicating religious struggle in every study that's been published predict worse mental and physical health outcomes at hospital discharge. I'll just give you one example of six or seven that we could go through. This was Pargement and Hal Koenig uh, done again at Rush in Chicago. It's a prospective study of about 2,700 patients, just under 2,700 patients, of whom 595 of that group, about one-fifth of the group, about maybe 20%, 20% believed one of these five things, one or more of these five things. Either that they were in the hospital because of their cancer, their sickness, their trauma, their infection, whatever reason they were in the hospital, because God was punishing for something they did or thought or didn't do or didn't think. That God had abandoned them, left them. That a loving God, uh, if, if he was here with me, would not have allowed this to happen. That God didn't lo- doesn't love me. If he did love me, this wouldn't happen to me. That God didn't have the power to help. I went to the elders and they laid oil on. I went to the church and they prayed. I went to the healing service. I asked and I used the formula that I was told would work and it didn't work. And obviously God doesn't have the power to do this. Or, attached to reason one, obviously my sin is so bad and so deep that God cannot forgive them. It's abandoned me because of that. Or, Something as simple as my faith community has abandoned me. They they haven't come up to visit me. The point is that patients in med surge and psych who harbored at least one of these five beliefs when followed over the subsequent two years had a 19 to 28% increased, not morbidity, but mortality. If you were going to write a discharge summary Monday when you got back, to work, wouldn't you kind of want to know if that patient was leaving with a 28% increased risk of morbidity, yeah. uh, mortality? I would think you probably would. The 19%, by the way, was the med surge. The 28% was in the psych, the psych patients. So it identifies a huge risk factor. Now, what's interesting, this was a multivariate analysis. So uh, the differences were statistically, and I would argue clinically significant, independent of the physical health of the person, independent of mental health, and most importantly, independent of social support. Because a lot of people say, well, the religious is social and the two are equal. In this this study, they were clearly uh, separate. So they concluded that such patients may, without their doctor's encouragement, refuse to speak to clergy because they're angry at God and have cut themselves off from this source of support. By the way, these historical factors were found not with the admission spiritual history that's done routinely at this hospital. This was not found by the nurses who took a spiritual history. This was found by the doctors themselves. So it appears that it may not be for those of us who have the privilege of serving as doctors, it may not be something we can pan off to someone else necessarily um, all of the time. The fourth reason that spiritual histories are now considered part of, of 
quality clinical care. They may enhance health care. And perhaps the strongest uh, systematic review that looks at that was published by Dale Matthews. Dale, many of you know his name. He's an internist at Georgetown. Did a systematic review that was published back in 1998. So it's, it's an old systematic review, but I think it's still valid. It was entitled Religious Commitment and Health Status, a Review of the Research and Implications for Family Medicine. Labeled that way because it was in a family medicine journal. A journal, but it would apply across specialties. And this was the conclusion of their study. The empirical literature regarding the relationship between religious factors and physical and mental health status was reviewed. In other words, they were looking for associations, population-based studies, looking for an association between uh, religious factors and then mental and physical health. They looked at every study that they could come across. The religious factors that they looked for in particular were frequency of religious attendance. It's a very weak measure, but yet it's, it's a, a, an important one. Private religious involvement. In other words, not just external belief, where you go to church or where you worship, but internal. How do your beliefs affect you? What sort of private religious involvement do you have, whether it's prayer or journaling or Bible study or whatever? And then relying on one's religious beliefs as a source of strength and coping. So those were the religious factors that they were looking for through the medical literature. And in particular, he says, studies were highlighted that examined the role of religious commitment or religious involvement in the prevention of illness, coping with illness that already has come up, and recovery from illness. So that's what they were looking for. What did they find? A large proportion of published empiric data, approaching 95% when looking at the associations with physical health and approaching 85% of the literature looking at associations with mental health. But a large proportion of published empiric data suggests that religious commitment plays a beneficial role in preventing mental and physical illness. And these are population effects. They're general effects. They don't apply to every individual. And this is the weakest area of association is in prevention. But it's there, not only in preventing mental and physical illness, but improving how people cope with mental and physical illness. And last but not least, facilitating recovery from illness. Perhaps the most uh, striking of the data is the surgical data. And it doesn't matter if you look at GYN cancer data or orthopedic data or general surgical data or cardiovascular surgical data. And every study that's been published to date looking at religious factors shows that the deeper a person's spiritual health, the better the recovery, whether it's measured as shorter length of stay, morbidity, mortality, infectious rates, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, if we had a pill that would do these three things, it would outsell Viagra. Yeah. Not by much, but, but <laughs> it would outsell it, I think. So Matthews and et al. conclude, the available data suggests that practitioners who make several small changes in how patients' religious commitments are broached in clinical practice may enhance healthcare outcomes. Now, when they submitted the article to, uh, to archives, Marge Bowman in Philadelphia as the editor, and they, they said, will enhance healthcare outcomes. That's how strong they felt the data was. And she made them switch it to May as a condition of publishing, and they did. But the point was, we're not talking big changes, lots of time, intense counseling, little small changes. The pedestal upon which your patients place you, a pedestal you may have not earned nor deserved, but they place you there, is one that makes very small aliquots of words 
very powerful. And we don't have to just look at the spiritual data. We can look at the smoking cessation data of the, study, of the RCTs that show that when a, a, healthcare, a trusted healthcare professional says, I wish you'd stop smoking, that 11% of those patients will stop and not be smoking six months later. Now, it's not everyone, but it's 11%. If we look at the seatbelt RCT data, whether it's in the pediatric or the adult literature, a, a healthcare professional who says, who knows that a patient's not using a seatbelt every time or not buckling up their kid every time, who just says, in one study, I wish you would love yourself enough. I recommend that you love yourself enough that you have the seatbelt hug you every time you start the car. That six months later, 63% of those patients, non-seatbelt users, are still using seatbelts. For the obstetrician gynecologist who delivers the, the baby, and visits the family the next day and says, have you thought about how you're going to raise this child religiously? It's a powerful question that takes very little time. Small changes can make huge benefits. And fifth and perhaps most importantly in academic medicine and in medical legal medicine is that it's now considered a standard of of care. Uh, in our systematic review, we say this, professional organizations increasingly are calling for greater sensitivity and better training of clinicians concerning the management of religious and spiritual issues in the assessment and treatment of patients. Any general surgeons here? It's like an unreached people group. <laughs> but even general surgeons understand this. Would you ever want to operate on someone who was a Jehovah's Witness and not know it? It's like carpe duh. Of course not. Why? Because their faith constructs impact medical decision making. It's something that intuitively we understand, but the culture has convinced us that we should uh, stay away from. Just to give you an example of the 10-year period between 1989 and 1998, these are the national organizations that came out with statements saying that spiritual history is part of quality care, whether you're looking at ACGME or what was then called JCO is now just called Joint Commission, American Academy of Family Physicians, and then kind of at the end was the American College of Physicians, American Society of Internal Medicine, and the AA. MC. All have statements saying that spiritual histories are a part of the standard of care. The requirement for, for the Joint Commission is for long-term care, like nursing home or uh, admissions, uh, mental health admissions, whether they're outpatient or inpatient, uh, psych admissions, medical surge, uh, med surge admissions. In all of those requirements, a Class A requirement is, uh, is uh, spiritual history. And this is what Joint Commission says. It should, at a minimum, determine the patient's denomination, beliefs, and what spiritual practices are important to them. Joint Commission says, this information would assist in determining the impact of spirituality, if any, on the care service being provided, and will identify if any further assessment is needed. You see, the purpose here isn't to invade a person's life and to push something upon them that they are not ready for or do not want, but rather... It's to find out where are you in your journey. How does that impact what's going on with you? And how can I join you where you're at in taking the next mini step forward in your spiritual journey? It's the purest of love. It's not a spiritual history with an agenda. It's a spiritual history looking to serve, to meet someone uh, where they're at.
Well, let me just run through a few of the of the available instruments that you can consider. One of the first, uh, Leon Cass, some of you remember him. He was the chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics. Uh, and he has a spiritual history that's been around for a while. It's validated internally and externally. The in-spirit exam's pretty long. It's like 24 or 28 questions. And finally, as an academic doc, he was convinced by practicing docs to, like, bring that down into reality. Can you give us two or three questions? And, and, and the social science people are beginning to learn this when it comes to depression, for example. They're learning how can how – can, you're not going to get – Healthcare professionals to screen for depression unless you can get them to ask one or two or three questions. Same thing with tobacco cessation. Now we're seeing the same thing in spiritual histories. So the three questions that he has, and I'm not suggesting you use any one of these. What I'm saying is you can just look through these questions and decide which of them match my temperament, my personality, which of them match my practice. Are there one or two that I'd like to begin implementing where I am to see, see what happens. So how close do you feel to God or a higher power is his first one. Have you ever had an experience that convinced you that God or a higher power exists? How strongly religious, uh, spiritually oriented do you consider yourself to be? This is part of the spiritual history. You ask it while you're asking about tobacco and alcohol and work and family uh, relationships. Todd Moggins writing in Archives of Family Medicine, the article was entitled, entitled, entitled The Spiritual History, and spirit was capitalized. It was an acrostic. Todd later went back and became a neurosurgeon. That's like, like a way midlife crisis if you like, switch from family medicine to... But here's uh, his questions. What does your spirituality mean to you, if anything? What aspect of your religion or spirituality would you like me to keep in mind as I care for you? Would you like to discuss the religious or spiritual implications of your health care? Maybe yes, maybe no. It would be very, very important, to, just even in the nonverbals. I remember I was seeing a patient in practice and saying, um, uh, well, actually, let me give you her, because I'll actually show you the questions I, I used with Gail. Christine Prochowski at, at Georgetown came up with FICA. Uh, interestingly, she, she published this in a March journal just before April taxes, FICA. So, F, is faith in God important to you? The I, what impact does faith have on your life, if, if any? The C, how important is your faith community to you? A, how can I assist you? Does your pastor, priest, rabbi need to know you're here because of HIPAA regulations? There's been some difficulty with the hospital notifying people, so can, can I help you there? Uh, do you want to know where worship services are? Or, you know, whatever you say. How can I assist you? The hope uh, acrostic. What source of hope, strength, comfort, meaning, peace, love, and connection do you have? Uh, Harv Elder, who teaches uh, METS, uh, internist out in, in uh, California. Um, what source of hope do you have? This is a, a terrible illness you're wrestling with. What, sort of host, what source of hope do you have? It's his favorite opening spiritual question. The O is organized religion. Is it or has it ever been important uh, in your life? P is personal spirituality or practices. Is there anything I need to know about with your spiritual practices that might impact your care? And then the E is effects. Uh, uh, do any of your personal practices affect your care that I need to know about? Or, of course, end-of-life decisions. Dave Larson. Uh, Dave and I trained at Duke back in the 70s. Uh, uh, Dave trained with Bill Wilson there and then went from there to the uh, 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 National Institute of Mental Health and later uh, – formed a, a research think tank, and Dave came up with a short screening form that 
again, internally and externally validated of three questions. This is the one that, that I used in practice for a long time. Do you attend religious services? Or it might be where you go to church. You know, it just depends on where you are, how you might ask it. And if so, how often do you generally attend? You, know, you, you use tobacco products. Yes. How often? How long? You know, a yes might generate a, a secondary uh, question. <clears throat> Aside from attending religious services, would you say that religion is important to you, going from external beliefs to internal beliefs? And is prayer something that's important to you? Do you pray? If so, how frequently? And so for, I don't know, I guess 15 years on, our, on my little problem list in practice, up in the social history area, I had services, personal, and prayer. Services was going to church or synagogue. Is it something that you do? Personal is, uh, aside from religious service, do you, do you feel like you have a personal relationship with God? Or is it something that's more distant? And prayer is prayer something important to you. had a, a lady named Gail. That's her real name, and I use it with her permission. And I saw her for the first time, and I said, uh, you know, I'm just going through the spiritual history. I said, you know, uh, do, you, do you go to church at all? And she goes, God, No. <laughs> That was interesting. Now, I'm not go- I've not got time to go into that right now, but that's kind of interesting. And then personal, do you feel like you have a, any sort of personal relationship with God? There's a little bit more distance. And she goes, G-D, no. And I didn't even ask about prayer. <laughs> but this hard, crusty woman who had been macerated uh, as a young girl, by a religious uh, experience, um, is now in the throes of dying from cholangiocarcinoma. Um, she trusted the Lord and began to follow Jesus uh, about 10 or 11 years ago. And I just got an email from her this morning. We're still in close contact. And uh, she... Uh, in the throes of dying from this cancer, her prayer ministry has, has grown more and more and more. She claims that her relationship with Christ began with a family physician asking her some very uncomfortable questions. Wow. I t- no, it didn't. It began before there was even a day in her life, You're right? But God can and will use us if we're willing to step out. This is one area where we can begin to, to do that. Now, I'm simple. I'm a, kind of a simpleton. Scott and I practiced together five years, and he will attest to that fact. And so I've now switched from the Larson questionnaire to what I call the God questions. They just help me remember to take a spiritual history. So the G is God. Is God, spirituality, faith, religion, something that's important uh, to you? The O is others. Do you participate or have you ever participated in a faith community? And if so, how often do you meet? And the do is what can I assist uh, do as far as incorporating your faith into our practice here? Or can I pray with you? Uh, So the God questions. Let me just end with a couple of how-tos and cautions, and then we can talk for a little bit. Any medical or dental intervention that we have, if given, if administered to the wrong person in the wrong dose at the wrong time can have adverse reactions, even allergic reactions. But in this area of spirituality, we approach patients with permission, with sensitivity, and with respect. Uh, we can uh, be much less likely to have those type of reactions. When uh, John Hartman and I started practicing together in 1985, but it was 
it wasn't until 1988 that we began to incorporate spiritual interventions in our practice. And it occurred because um, Barb and I had joined a new church, and we were going to a Southern Baptist church. It was our first experience with that denomination. John had been raised and, and, and practiced a very evangelical form of Roman Catholicism. Um, in fact, uh, John's church was the uh, Promise Keeper Center for our county and the, and the Why Wait Center. Our kids made a, a purity profession at Holy Redeemer Church in Kissimmee. Go figure. But we were having coffee one morning, and John said, how do you like that new church? And I said, well, so far we kind of like it. And he said, well, don't you people believe in sharing your faith? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, we people believe in sharing our faith. Yeah, we do. He said, well, so do we people. <clears throat> and then he asked me this. He said, how come we don't bring our faith to work with us? I said, carpe duh. That's a good question. And we began to talk about and pray about and research how would we begin to bring our faith to work. Praying with patients and beginning spiritual histories were the two first interventions that we began to do. And because I was so concerned that people were going to find this weird, unusual, I prepared a little paragraph and I carried it on a little three-by-five card, and it said this. Research studies have shown that <laughs> religious commitment status can have an impact on your health, and since our goal is to provide the best health care possible, would you be willing to answer three simple questions to help me understand the role of religion in your life? And if you don't want to, it's okay. <laughs> but if you want to, it's okay. Well, that didn't last very long. I don't even know if it lasted a day. Because over time, as I asked these questions, nobody even wrinkled their forehead. And I have a, a mentor. He's a dairy farmer named Bill Judge. And Bill and I have met or talked every week for 25 years. Um, wonderful man of God. And we were having breakfast one morning, Joni's Cafe. Remember down, downtown Kissimmee? And uh, I said, Bill, i got to ask you something. He said, what? I said, I've been asking these spiritual history questions, and nobody has objected. Nobody, not one. And he said, well, did you expect them to? And I said, well, yeah, I really did. And he said, why? I said, because they're weird questions. <laughs> he thought a second, and then he said, well, you know, y'all ask a lot of really weird questions anyway. <laughs> That's probably just some extra weird ones. Well, I got defensive. I said, <clears throat> like what? I mean, what do I ask that's weird? And he said, well, it's like when I came in from a physical, he said, Letitia asked me how many people I had had sex with in the previous year. <laughs> he said, that's a weird question. <laughs> he said, and I couldn't figure out if it was zero or one. <laughs> but, but, and Post has written this, professional problems can occur when well-meaning physicians faith-push a patient opposed to discussing religion. However, rather than ignoring faith completely with all patients, most of whom want to discuss it, physicians might ask a question to discern who would like to pursue it and who would rather not. So let me just conclude with a couple of topics. Let's go back to Richard Sloan, psychologist at Columbia, who says he does not think you should be taking spiritual histories. I'll give you three opposing opinions. The first from Willie Osler, right? Writing the first editorial 
in the first edition of the British Medical Journal back in 1910, an editorial called The Faith That Heals. And Dr. Osler, a deep and devout Christian, wrote this. Nothing in life is more wonderful than faith. The one great moving force which we can neither weigh in the balance nor test in the crucible. Mysterious, indefinable, known only by its effects. Faith pours out an unfailing stream of energy while abating neither jot nor tittle of its potence. He concludes by saying, we ignore our patients' faith at our and their peril. I think I'll take Osler over Sloan. Our Art Kornhaber, one of the more famous of the Harvard psychotherapists back in the 80s, in an interview with Newsweek said, to exclude God from medical consultation is a form of malpractice. Spirituality is wonder, joy, and shouldn't be left in the clinical closet. Or in our systematic review, our conclusion was the current evidence would encourage physicians, healthcare providers, and systems to learn to assess their patient's spiritual health and to provide indicated and desired spiritual intervention. Clinicians should not, without compelling data to the contrary, deprive their patients of the spiritual support and comfort upon which their hope, health, and well-being may hinge. Well, if you'd like to learn more about spiritual history, there's a couple of options for you. The Medical Strategic Network has uh, training conferences, student preceptorships, elective rotations. Uh, Bob Mason and the Mets folks are uh, exhibiting here at booth 1009, and there's some Mets materials up front you're welcome to. Also, the Christian Medical and Dental Association has the sailing solution, how to be salt in the right concentration with each patient that you see. And so checking at the CMDA booth, you can find out more about the sailing solution. You can do that as a weekend retreat or a weekly Bible study. And then the sailing solution has now been translated into a book for a book and a uh, home study series for people in the business world called Workplace Grace. And then for a copy of the handout, drop me a note, and I'll be happy to uh, send you one. So questions, comments, criticisms, critiques, suggestions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question was, what do you do if people of, of different faiths or, or even different denominations than you want to uh, do something spiritually uh, at your practice, in your practice, have, uh, in uh, medical schools I'll often be asked, what if the patient wants to pray with you to, pay, to doctors who don't pray? You know, how do you deal with that? In, in that setting, I'm not going to give you an answer to that particular uh, question but rather a couple of general principles. One is to understand that that is, to even ask that question, is a sign of amazing trust. That that is the patient opening a door, perhaps to see how you'll respond, saying that this is something that's crucial, that's important to me, can I blank? And so just to be able to recognize that, you know, I am honored that you would ask. Uh, it makes me think that you've come to see that uh, my spiritual relationship with God is the most important thing in my life. I mean, so, so it could be a chance for a faith flag, for example. However, there may be things that you aren't comfortable with. We had an old patient, Sam. He lets me use his name, but he was a Jehovah's Witness. 
and he was an elder at the local Jehovah's Witness. And he would bring enough literature to his office visit to, it must have been five or six trees worth of literature. And I love Sam and Mabel. I love them deeply. Walked with them through uh, invasive adenocarcinoma of the prostate. But I finally had to say, Sam, I love you. But you've got to stop bringing this stuff. Please, would it be okay if you just didn't bring any more literature? And he, he's really cute. He kind of said, well, I was kind of wondering when you'd ask. <laughs> well, I felt like I had to, you know. And uh, so to decide what, what limits you have. And, and at times it may even take, let me pray. Can I pray about that and get back to you? And seek advice from someone you trust. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I'm an OG from Clyde, North Carolina. I like Clyde. There you go. And uh, once I've learned how to do this in a long-term care setting, I love to go to work, even at 71 years old, Amen. because of the opportunities. You just, would you like someone to pray for you? Mm-hmm. Would it be okay if I pray for you? And most of the time, they'll say yes. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had anybody say, have said, you had ever? You know, he's dying of cancer, and I say to him, who or what do you turn to for? Yeah. Uh, when you're going through something like this, you're yeah. almost ready to die from prostate cancer. What, what do you turn to? And so we begin to talk mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Great questions. And I walk out and go back and talk to him about it on yeah. Have you ever had anybody say no? Pardon? Have you ever had anybody say no? To no. Pr- yeah, I, I haven't, but there are the physicians. The closest, closest I came was Bob Kroll. You may remember Bob. Big guy, like looked like a Green Bay Packer tackle. He's a massive man. He was a truck driver, and he was in for a department yeah. DOT exam, Department of Transportation. And normally that's just like a real quick exam. In fact, you do the ophthalmologist point. You know what that is? Like where you listen to the point where you listen to the lungs, the heart, and the stomach all in one point. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like the DOT. But we actually did, did good exams. And that included digital rectal exam. And he had a, an enlarged nodular lobe of the prostate. Didn't have a doctor. Said, well, we can refer you to someone. If you want to come back here, you can. Came back, and PSA was elevated. Free PSA was abnormal. Transrectal biopsy saw, showed a Gleason 7 adenocarcinoma of the prostate. Talked about the different op- options. He chose to have nerve-sparing nerve uh, total prostatectomy. And so the morning that he came into the hospital, we always assisted in the surgeries. And so I would always meet my pre-surgical patients uh, ahead of time. Now, I knew Bob was particularly adverse to spiritual things because when I asked him, is God, faith, or prayer important to you, he said, absolutely not. Have you ever had any involvement with a faith community as a child or as an adult? He went, absolutely not. Is prayer something that's important to you? Absolutely not. Except once, he said. I blew a, a tire in the front, and I was, pu- I was heading towards a bridge embankment. And he said, I said a quick prayer then, but otherwise no. So here he is at the morning of surgery, and I would go in and talk with patients, and, and I would always offer to pray for them. And I've got to tell you, Ernie, I really thought about not doing it. I, this guy was so antagonistic when I did the spiritual history. I thought, you know, why open myself up to more anger and rejection? But nevertheless, a small old voice said ask. So I just said, Bob, I know that faith's not important to you, but I think you know that it is very important to me. And I always offer to pray for my patients before they go into surgery. Would that be okay? And I was, he was going to be my first. Say no. That was fine. But he said, well, I'd be all right. <laughs> And I was holding the gurney, and I don't know if I grabbed it because I was going to fall, but I was holding it. And so I just bowed my head, and I normally would, and, and with the urologic care we had there, prayer was very good before surgery. But that was a different issue. 
So I began praying, and as I prayed, I felt this monster truck driver hand come up and lay right across my hands. She grabbed both my hands with one bare paw and just held on. At the end, when I said, I'm in, he didn't let go. And I looked, he had big tears coming down his cheeks, and his lip was quivering, and uh, he didn't let go. And he took his other hand, he wiped his tears, and he said, you're not going to tell anybody, are you? <laughs> and I said, what, that you cried or that we, that we prayed? He said, nah, that we held hands. <laughs> I tell that with his permission because it was just two or three months later that, that through that cancer that Bob gave his life to Christ. It was within six months that he was discipling other men. And it was within a year, that he, a year that he became part of our spiritual consult team so that anyone who had prostate cancer in our practice, Bob and Nina Sue, would come in and, and minister to him. God can use you where, wherever he plants you. One last question, and I'll be glad to stay around too. I just want to say yes and amen because I, when I work in the States, I had people come from an hour drive just to see me because they knew I was the only Christian practitioner around who would pray for them. Now my husband and I just finished four years in Sudan, and I worked with a lot of Muslim Arabs from the north in Khartoum. And I had so many opportunities to pray with these Muslims. And even my own Sudanese staff from the southern Sudanese staff would say, you can't talk to them about Jesus. They're Muslim. You can't pray with them. They're Muslim. And I said, you just watch. I said, do you want me to pray for you? And they'd say, yes. And I would lay hands on them and pray for them. I tell you, I had Fulanis who are completely unreached group, Arabs from the north and others, just so thankful, just, oh, shukran, shukran, shukran. Thank you so much for praying for me. Thank you so much. And I think it made a huge difference in their healing process, as you spoke about, and in their their attitude about the care and and wanting to do the right things. I saw it happen every single time I prayed for them. I like that story, Kathy, you tell about the patient who said, shukran, you can keep your head. Joke, North African. <laughs> Let me end our time together. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters that I believe you have drawn here today. I pray that you will have spoken to them in their heart with that silent, quiet, soft voice of yours to encourage them to begin to bring their faith to work. And wherever you plant them, Father, may you bear fruit in them and through them because they trust you and obey you. And I lift them up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I'll be glad to stick around for a little bit.